I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 42, The Romanovs Divided, part one, Fyodor. Okay, so last time out, wow, it was some time ago, I think about four weeks ago, we looked at Russian society and serfdom, and hopefully you ended up with a good understanding of how things were organised across the different social levels within Russia, And with any luck, you made it through to the end and listened to the 33rd Psalm in all of its glory. This week, we're back on to the main narrative. But before I start, I just wanted to mention that this episode is coming out later than I'd anticipated, pretty much all due to some ill health in my family. Um, One of my family members caught shingles. And it sounds, shingles sounds as if it's a minor thing, but actually it isn't. And uh, yeah, it's taken my mind off of things for a while. But anyway, hopefully that is now all under control. And then I just want to say a big thanks to listener Deb from British Columbia in Canada, who rightfully pointed out that the sound quality over the past few episodes has been perhaps a bit inconsistent. But she still gave me a four-star review. Thanks, Debs. Deb, that's very kind. And I hope that you and everybody else has a better experience with the last couple of episodes. Okay, so where were we? Well, let's just do a very quick recap. Moscow, February 1676. Tsar Alexei has died after a short illness. And his successor is his ninth child and eldest surviving son, the 14-year-old, intellectually gifted but physically afflicted, Fyodor III. And by the way, you might hear me say Fyodor or Fyodor or Fyodor. Um, 
but it should be Fyodor. Okay, so born in 1661, Fyodor was from the Miloslavsky branch of the family, his mother having been Alexei's first wife. And for most of his young life, he'd been seriously ill with a debilitating and mysterious ailment. Now, I've previously alluded to this illness or condition in a past episode, hoping that by the time I came to his actual reign, I would be able to put more meat on the bones. But all I've, been, all I've managed to find is a number of different sources that all say the same kind of generic thing, scurvy. So scurvy, which is a particularly horrible word, isn't it, is a progressive disease that is caused by a lack of vitamin C, which in turn is brought about by not eating enough fresh fruit and vegetables. And the classic symptoms of the condition, if prolonged or left untreated, are severe joint pain, particularly in the legs due to poor development of bones and cartilage, fever, anemia, general weakness and excessive bruising, again particularly in the legs, all of which Fyodor exhibited at one point or another. Now there is a view that the new Tsar perhaps suffered from a rare hereditary form of the disease, but no one else in the family apart from in a minor way, perhaps his grandfather, Mikhail, is reported to have exhibited similar symptoms, and so the direct cause remains unknown. Anyhow, due to his illness, Fyodor had plenty of time on his hands, time that was put to good use, gaining an excellent all-round education, which included theology, philosophy, rhetoric, poetry, and learning how to speak and write in both Polish and Latin. And all of this was done under the one of the most learned men in Russia, Simeon Polotsky, who also passed on to his student an appreciation and fascination for all things European. And just as an aside, whereas his father had obsessed over his falcons, Fyodor loved anything and everything about horses. Anyway, as Tsar, Fyodor would need to use his intellect and have his wits about him, because he'd inherited a couple of tricky challenges. And the first of these was that Russia was at war again, this time with the Ottomans. And then secondly, the Miloslavsky Romanovs, that's the family of Alexei's first wife, and the Narishkin Romanovs, the family of Alexei's second wife, and their respective supporters, were visibly and noisily jostling for power, and are very soon going to be at each other's throats. So let's deal with the Ottoman war first, because of the two, it would prove to be the least onerous to Fyodor on a personal and practical level. So remember, from a few weeks ago, the eastern part of Ruthania, which was the western part of the old Ruslands, had been occupied by the Ukrainian Cossack Hetmanate, who were supported from a distance by their Russian allies. The western part of Ruthenia had remained as part of the Commonwealth, but that all changed when the Turks, sensing Polish fragility and therefore an opportunity, invaded and occupied the territory between 1672 and 1676, with the help of Crimean Tatars and a pro-Ottoman stroke anti-Russian faction of Ukrainian Cossacks 
under the leadership of a certain Petro Doroshenko. In 1674, however, the Russian-backed Hetmanate in Kiev, or Kiev, elected a new leader, Ivan Somalovich, who was no fan of Doroshenko and his gang, and in 1676, with the support of Russian troops, he captured Doroshenko's base in a place called Chigrin, which is in modern-day central Ukraine, and had him sent into exile in Russia. But in 1678, Suleiman II's Ottoman army managed to capture Chigrin and then sent a force of Crimean Tatars to attack and push back the nearby Russian forces. Now this was initially successful, but throughout 1679 and into 1680, the Russians, even though they were significantly outnumbered, were able to repel further Tatar attacks and the whole thing, as so often it did, developed into a bit of a stalemate. So we'll leave things there for the moment because 500 miles away to the north, back in Moscow, a different set of fun and games, without any of traditional warfare's established rhythm or rules, had been taking place. The battle for Romanov supremacy. The atmosphere at court had changed the moment that Alexei had fallen ill. And he recognised that it had because in one of those touching and probably invented deathbed scenes, he begged for his wife Natalia Narishkina to forgive him for leaving her and their children unprotected and at the mercy of the Miloslavskis. But surely, or maybe this was overstating the danger, because at first glance, when you looked at the Miloslavsky faction, it didn't appear to contain anyone significant or strong enough who could be viewed as a threat. I mean, there was Fyodor, obviously, but he was only 14, and his 10-year-old brother, Ivan, was considered to be, in the language of the time, simple-minded. However, there were others who we've not previously met, which is shorthand for I haven't mentioned them yet. So first off, meet Ivan Miloslavsky, whose nickname was The Scorpion which probably tells you all you need to know. Rich and cunning, Ivan Mikhailovich Miloslavsky was a cousin of Alexei's first wife, and during Alexei's reign, he had held a couple of Okolnichi roles as head of the apothecary department, which looked after the Tsar's health, and then as commander of the Astrakhan garrison. So nothing that notable, but at the very beginning of Fyodor's reign, he was promoted to boyar rank or Boyar rank. And then we have Alexei's three surviving sisters, Fyodor's aunts, Irina, Anna, and Tatiana, and then Fyodor's six elder sisters, Yevdokia, Marfa, Sofia, Ekaterina, Maria, and Feodosia, who were all unmarried and living lives of semi-seclusion in the Terem. So lots of names there, but the only ones that you need to remember are Aunt Irina and then two of Fyodor's sisters, Marfa and Sophia, and particularly Sophia. So if you remember nobody else, just remember Sophia's name. And these, well, one aunt and two sisters, together with the scorpion, Ivan, had all taken a dim view 
of Alexei's second marriage, and according to some reports, had stopped the old Tsar, Alexei that is, from naming Peter, Natalia's son, as his heir. And going forward, this coterie was determined to ensure that it was the Miloslavskis and not the Narishkins who would be the senior branch of the family, get a firm grip on power and shape the course of Russian history. So should Natalia and her gang have been worried? Well, I suppose the fact that I'm mentioning, mentioning it would suggest that the answer to that question is yes, they should. But then having said that, she did have the patriarch, Joachim, and the chief minister, Artemon Matveyev, in her corner. But all would very much depend on the way in which the young Tsar would lean. Anyway, Fyodor was now in a bit of a tricky corner and stuck between a rock and a hard place, if both are possible at the same time. Joint situations which weren't helped by the almost constant pressure being put on him by his aunt Irina and his sister Sophia, who wanted him to do something about the Nereshkins before, in their words, it was too late. And so in the end, he either bowed to this pressure or turned a blind eye to it because Artemon Matveyev was dismissed from his position as chief minister. This, however, was just the start. The scorpion Miloslavsky carved up the running of the various governmental functions between himself and his corrupt cronies, and invented a brand new department, the Investigations Office, office sounds a bit sinister, where he worked night and day trying to find something, anything, that would worsen the situation for Matveyev and Natalia, including having their servants hideously tortured. Eventually, though, someone, maybe it was Fyodor himself, called an end to the barbarity, but not before Matveyev had been exiled to the Arctic wastes. He'd been lucky, though, because the Miloslavskis had wanted him executed, but Fyodor, showing that he wasn't a complete pushover, had refused. As for Natalia, well, she and her children, including the five-year-old Peter, were banished from court to somewhere with a very unhelpful, fiendishly long name. So here goes. Preobrazhenskoye, just east of Moscow. Far enough to be on the, out of the way, but near enough to be kept a close eye on. And so, with the scorpion in charge, Matveyev and Natalia out of the picture, and the Tsar appearing to toe the line, Round one had gone to the Miloslavskis, and for the next couple of years, the atmosphere at court would be calmer, less febrile. But, in the corridors of power, some had started to ponder where, long-term, this Miloslavsky project was headed. Fyodor was still generally unwell, and was often incapacitated for weeks at a time. His brother and heir, Ivan, seemed to be getting worse as each year passed, and the war with the Turks was still rumbling on with no apparent conclusion in sight. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In April 1680, however, things took, well, they took an odd turn. Fyodor publicly attended a church service, which in itself was unusual. And then during the proceedings, his eye noticeably fell upon one of the young ladies of the court, the stunningly beautiful Agafia Rushetskaya. And when he found out a few days later that she could speak four different languages and play the harpsichord, the Tsar was hooked. He immediately announced that he was getting married. But hang on a minute, the scorpion told him. Well, he told him in no uncertain terms that the traditional bride show was the only stroke best way for a royal wife to be chosen, all of which meant that the scorpion had a preferred candidate. And without really asking for permission, he went ahead and planned the event. But when the finalists were lined up in front of Fyodor, the Tsar refused to pick a winner. The scorpion tried all kinds of subterfuge to stop Fyodor from making his own choice accusing Agafia and her mother of prostitution and other lurid acts. It's a great word, isn't it? Lurid. But in July 1680, the marriage went ahead. And soon afterwards, the scorpion, to the surprise of many and disappointment of a few, was arrested and exiled. Not long afterwards, events down in Kiev, or I keep forgetting the modern-day pronunciation, Kiev, took a turn for the worse. The Ottomans had broken the stalemate and were on the march northwards, but the Russian generals, instead of hitting back or taking other decisive action, were squabbling amongst each other to determine which one amongst them took precedence and therefore which one amongst them was in actual command. Fyodor appointed an up-and-coming boyar, or boyar, Prince Vasily Golitsyn, to take direct command and he managed to bang a few heads together and eventually stopped the Ottoman advance. And so we had a stalemate again. Well, that stalemate gave both sides uh, a, a chance to have a long think. And they decided to call it a day. Suleiman II had bigger fish to fry in the Balkans and the Russians and the Cossacks were happy, for the time being, with the status quo. They hadn't lost any land, they just had the Ottomans as Western neighbours instead of the Commonwealth. And so on January the 13th, 1681, all parties were more or less happy to sign the Treaty of Bakchisarai, which established a new Russo-Turkish border along the Dnieper River. And so the second major outbreak of hostilities between the Ottomans and the Russians had ended peacefully. The first had occurred, if you remember, back in 1568, during Ivan the Terrible's reign. But, don't worry, there'll be a further ten Russo-Turkic wars to cover over the coming centuries, as both countries jostled for regional supremacy, and the next one won't be that far away. Back in Moscow, Fyodor, now free of the Scorpion's shackles, was enjoying life with his new wife Agafia. Well, as much as his health allowed him to and she was encouraging her husband to stop listening to the boyars, which 
still sounds weird, sounds a weird way of saying it, and his relatives, and start pushing ahead with his own agenda. Oh, and by the way, she was pregnant. So what was on Fyodor's agenda? Well, there was in effect one item. Reform as much as possible. Strangely, though, apart from serfdom. And make Russia more European, more modern and more liberal. But to do this, he needed a clear plan of action and money. Lots of it. So a population census was taken and the labyrinthine taxation system was completely overhauled. Tax collection was outsourced to independent tax farmers, which reduced corruption and significantly increased revenues that in turn funded Russia's first social welfare system and Fyodor's further reforms, such as the military. So the military was reformed again, and the size of the army increased to become one of the biggest in Europe. The justice system was made less draconian, and punishments for minor crimes, like chopping off the hands of thieves, were abolished. Although it's worth noting that the use of the knout was kept on the books, and more crimes were made punishable by exile to Siberia. The education system was westernised, and the Tsar founded the Academy of Sciences at the, and here goes again, Zykinospasky Monastery in Moscow. Administrative areas and boundaries were officially redrawn across the entire country and a large-scale rebuilding program was undertaken in Moscow, with the key aim being to replace wooden buildings that were susceptible to fire damage with new ones constructed out of stone and brick. And the court became more Western in outlook with the adoption of Polish fashions and horror of horrors, some of the boyars with encouragement from the Tsar even shaved off their beards. Shocked by the squabbling of his generals during the recent war with the Turks, Fyodor had the system of precedence abolished and the great books of rank were publicly burnt. From now on, promotion, either in the military or at court, was, well, in theory it was, to be based on merit only. And then finally, to top it all off, Late in 1681, Fyodor was confident enough to have the Miloslavsky faction dismissed from court, and he recalled Natalia and her family and her retinue back to Moscow. However, in the midst of this whirlwind of change and reform, tragedy struck. In July 1681, Agafia gave birth to a son, but three days later, Due to complications and probably due to an infection, she died, followed a few days later by the death of the child. The Tsar was overcome by grief and his state of mind and physical well-being both collapsed. Up in the north, someone else's health had taken a nosedive, that of our old friend, the ex-patriarch Nikon. And bereft as he was, Fyodor gave permission for the old war horse to return to Moscow, but unfortunately, when he reached Yaroslav, about 150 miles from the capital, he could go no further, and a few days later, aged 76, he died. And by the way, Nikon's old adversary, the ex-archpriest and strident old believer, Avakum, 
also died around the same time. But there had been no royal olive branch for him. He had been dragged out of his little log hut in the Arctic, and along with three of his followers, he was burnt at the stake. In early 1682, health-wise, the 20-year-old Tsar was back to something like his old self. But perhaps sensing that time was running short, his attention was again focused on marriage and the production of that all-important heir. But with no one particular in mind this time, Fyodor bowed to tradition and gave the go-ahead for a bride show to be arranged. And when eventually the contestants had been whittled down to the two lucky finalists, the Tsar chose Marfa Apraxina, who was aged somewhere between 14 and 17, and who, coincidentally, was Artemon Matveyev's goddaughter. As for the unlucky finalist, and her father, yep, you've guessed correctly, exiled to Siberia, which doesn't seem particularly modern or liberal to me. So the wedding took place in February 1682, and shortly afterwards, two things happened. On Marfa's suggestion, Matveyev was recalled to Moscow, and then Fyodor became ill. Well, more seriously ill than normal. And this time, there was to be no recovery. By the April, it was clear to those in court circles that the Tsar was seriously ill. And so in the background, the two main factions started to subtly and quietly plan for the future and sound out potential allies. And whilst this subterfuge was being played out, something seemingly minor and run-of-the-mill occurred. A Streltsy regiment raised a grievance about their pay, or lack of it, because apparently their colonel was trousering the money. However, when the complaint reached the regimental commander, he decided to punish the ringleaders with the knell, which resulted in the rest of the regiment deciding to mutiny. Okay, keep that in mind, that just that small piece about the Streltsy. Finally, at some point in late April or early May 1682, Fyodor lost his long battle with ill health. But, importantly, and frustratingly for some, he died without naming a successor. So the next day, the Narushkins and Patriarch Joachim called a meeting of the boyars and the clergy, informed them that Fyodor had died without nominating an heir, and then told them that they had to decide today between the 15-year-old mentally and physically challenged Ivan, Miroslavsky, or the tall, healthy 10-year-old Peter, and Narishkin as their next Tsar. Hmm. Now, we don't know if they discussed the matter and voted or if the decision was unanimous, but by the end of the day, Peter was declared Tsar, and all five of his Narishkin uncles, Natalia's brothers, were hastily promoted to important positions. So was this a done deal? Well, on the surface, it certainly looked like it. But later that evening, as the news percolated out from the Kremlin, Fyodor and Ivan's older sister, Sofia, started to get angry. And as her anger grew, she started to hatch a plan. A plan that with a fair wind and under the right circumstances might just put a massive spanner in the Narishkin's works. 
Okay, that's where we're going to leave it for this week. In the next episode, I'll summarise and conclude Fyodor's brief time in charge, and then we'll be taking a look at Sofia and her plan, and seeing if that fair wind would blow in the right direction for the Miloslavskis. And spoiler alert, it sort of does. Okay, until then, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.